From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, looking forward to celebrating Women's Equality Day on the show today with two extraordinary women, each of whom are working to advance diversity and inclusion on a global scale in different parts of the STEM and business community. What exactly is Women's Equality Day? Equality Day, you might wonder, it commemorates the granting of the right to vote to women across the country on August 26, 1920. It was when the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution was certified as law. It started in 1972 when the legislation was first, a year after the legislation was first introduced into the Congress by Bella Abzug. It's a day reproclaimed each year by the President of the United States, and it serves for us as an ongoing symbol of the continued fight for equality by everyone, actually, and not just women. Although, very specifically, it acknowledges the past treatment of women as second-class citizens. Um, and importantly, it honors the women who work to assure that these rights and privileges are available to everyone, regardless of gender. And it generates, as we're doing here, recognition and support for women's organizations and activities. So today... On Women at Work, I am proud to have as our guest two women, each of whom is a champion for cultivating talent and advancing inclusion and diversity within their fields and organizations. The first one is Ellen Shook. She's the Chief Leadership and Human Resources Officer for Accenture. And then in the second half hour, we'll be welcoming back Dr. Megan Groom. She's the Senior Vice President of Education at the New York Academy of Sciences. If you'd like to join the conversation, we'd love to have you be part of it. So please give us a call at one 844 That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And Matt, who's sitting in for Patty in the booth today, he'll bring it on in. We'll get a chance to say hello, and we can also join you in the conversation that way. So while you're thinking about what are your questions about Women's Equality Day and diversity and inclusion in the workforce, I would like to tell you about our first guest. Ellen Shook is the Chief Leadership and Human Resources Officer for Accenture. Yes, the global management consulting, technology services, and outsourcing company that has more than, count them, 336,000 people that serve clients in more than 120 countries. This is an organization larger than many cities, larger than some states. It's truly extraordinary what they're doing there. And Ellen has made it her mission to transform the way that we run businesses and conceptualize work-life integration. Um, As the chief leadership and human resources officer there, she and her team have focused on really rethinking leadership and talent practices, specifically in the digital age, and in uh, a phrase that resonates close with join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace, how do they attract, develop, and inspire, and then reward the very best people? Um, Ellen's known as a determined advocate for inclusion and diversity in the workplace and was named by Forbes as one of the top 100 CHROs in 2015. So with all of that, Ellen, thank you so much for joining us on Women at Work. We're thrilled to have you today. Thanks, Laura. I'm really thrilled to be here, especially since we're honoring the special Women's Equality Day. Indeed. So, Ellen, as I was, you know, learning about you and preparing for today's show, um, in addition to all the things I knew about you already, one of the things that became really clear to me is your work on diversity inclusion is so much more than a corporate statement. It seems like it's really a personal point of view. 
and that you, it imbues your leadership role and the role you play publicly. Could you tell me, how did, how did you get there? How did your perspective get shaped along the way? I guess, Laura, it started when I was really young, to be honest with you, very, very young. Um, and my dad was an educator. He was superintendent of schools, and he was very committed to education equality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the first things I remember about my dad as a professional was that he served uh, the integration orders on the school district I went to school in and several other school districts in New York State. And that was hard. You know, that was really hard for him to do, and it wasn't a popular thing to do at the time. But he felt really strongly about education equality, and he used his voice to drive change in the world. And, you know, fast forward many, many years, many, many, many years, I realized, you know, getting this role, not only do I have an opportunity to drive equality in our workplace, but I have an obligation to do so. And I'm, as you say, it's not just a professional uh, uh, obligation. I feel really committed to driving gender equality around the globe. Ellen, it's, it's absolutely clear from the work that you do that this really is the case. And it's another testimony to the importance of the values that you learned at home and the role model you had up close as a kid, that you saw that this was important and necessary and worth the hard work. When you went into the workplace, though, um, not everybody exhibited those same values. Were there experiences in your career, positive or negative, that helped reinforce this for you and the importance of it? There, there were. I mean, I uh, uh, joined Accenture uh, three years after I graduated college, and frankly, there weren't as many women uh, then as there are now. <laughs> but I really was, I was very ambitious. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to hide that I am an ambitious person. Don't hide it. Be proud of it. <laughs> I am Celebrate proud of it. <laughs> and, you know, I had the opportunity to have great role models and, and mentors, not just at home, but here at Accenture throughout my career that really enabled my success. And, you know, a couple years ago, I saw Courtney Banghart, the coach of the Princeton women's basketball team, speak. And she said something that her dad taught her, so it really stuck in my mind. She said, my dad told me to lift as I rise. And watching my mentors pave the way for people like me uh, really is what drove me to make sure that I'm paving the way for the future generations walking through our doors. Zellen, you have a singularly influential role now in your life, but you didn't walk into your career in that position. No. And over the years that you were Accenture, um, the number of women has, it looks like it's almost tripled, if not more. Oh, my gosh. It's more than tripled. We, we have more than 140,000 women now at Accenture. And, and that's huge, huge progress. Yeah. That says to me that it's some combination of um, leadership, culture, and policy. Yep. Could, could you talk about how that's happened over time and where you see those relationships? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, we have an unwavering belief that our, our rich diversity, so gender diversity, but also all, all forms of diversity, make us smarter and more innovative. And as a business, it's essential to have that because that's how we serve our clients and help them solve their complex business challenges. And in order to, to be able to have that richness, it has to start at the top. 
right? Yes. You, you have to set the tone at the top. And for us, it starts with our CEO, Pierre Nanterre, and our board of directors. And we have uh, five women directors on our board, which I'm very proud of, but also, you know, gender, not just gender diversity, mm-hmm. but geographical diversity and ethnic diversity on our board as well. And um, that's where it all begins. Because once you have the commitment from the top, it starts to create a culture of inclusiveness. And you do need policies and programs. You absolutely do. You have to break down the barriers. You have to remove structural barriers that are preventing women from you know, being hired or progressing in their careers. But it's not just that. That just simply is, lays the groundwork and the foundation. What really has to happen is that there needs to be this belief and there needs to be a hyper-personalized approach to really ensuring that we're attracting women, helping them advance, and inspiring to reach, inspiring them to reach their aspirations. That term struck me in something else that I read about getting hyper-personal. Yep. In, and I think the quote was, because um, people are at the heart of the digital revolution, we need to get hyper-personal in how we face these challenges and unlock potential one human being at a time. Correct. We don't tend to think of the workplace, large workplace, global corporations, never mind ones with 336,000 people as being hyper-personalized. Can you talk to us about how that manifests and how you make that real on that scale? Sure. Well, just to give you a sense of the scale, we we are at 375,000 people. Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm sorry. I had old numbers. (laughs) Um, But really, I mean, if you think of how consumer companies are really interacting with their customers, right, on a very hyper-personalized, in Mm -hmm. a hyper-personalized way, we've taken those concepts and brought them into Accenture to create hyper-personalized employee experiences. And we do that by ensuring that our people have a lot of input and that we're listening to them. So we've done things like crowdsourcing to make sure that we're not overgeneralizing generational issues. You know, everyone talks about millennials, and sure, we have a lot of millennials at Accenture. (laughs) Of course you do. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. So really understanding what is important to each individual And then really ensuring that each person can work at the intersection of their strengths and their passions is how you really unlock that human potential and create hyper-personalized experiences. I want to back up to something because you – there's a pair there. It's not just about getting the input, but really listening. Correct. And and operationalizing what you learn. So let me tell you a story, if I may. Please. About Amy. Amy. (laughs) <laughs> Amy, Amy is a real employee at Accenture. Um, uh, I've known her for, for a while, and she's part of a group called Moms on the Move at Accenture. They're kind of a self-formed employee resource group. And right before Amy went out on maternity leave, she gave me a call and let me know she was going out. And when she came back, she, she wanted to talk to me about some things that she thought we could do to um, you know, make it easier for, for women to return to work. So we got on a call, and she said that she had just read that some other companies were um, paying for shipment of breast milk, and could we do that too? And I said, 
absolutely. You know, no, no hesitation. We absolutely can do that, too. That's fantastic. But, but when I, you know, and, and, I, and I'm lucky because I'm in a role where I can make that decision and move on. But when I hung up the phone, I thought, ooh, that seems like I'm solving a very small problem with a different root <laughs> cause. Like, why do we have new mothers on planes right. you know, shipping breast milk home when they just want to be breastfeeding their babies? So I called our chief executive of North America, Julie Sweet. And I, I told her how I was feeling. And fast forward 30 days, we really took what Amy was telling us, and we just decided we were going to implement a policy where all new parents, so not working mothers only, but all new, new parents, parents were going to have the opportunity to work in their home city, serving clients in their home city for a year after the birth of their child, so to level the playing field. Yes. But it was all about... Amy using her voice and adding my voice to her voice to really drive change in the, in our workforce. I, I would suggest that, it, yes, it was about all of that, but I think there's something more there that's really important that demonstrates this issue of culture. Because, um, you know, we talk about these issues a lot on the show, and what we hear is the opposite in many companies, where employees don't feel comfortable um, articulating their needs, particularly around parenting issues and most specifically around issues like breastfeeding, and that for an employee to be able to reach out um, really to the head of each HR to have this conversation speaks volumes about your culture. Yeah, and I think, you know, at Accenture, our people are everything. We're, our, we're a professional services business, so every single leader at Accenture feels a very important sense of responsibility to be, you know, very connected to our people. Um, it's, it's, we, you know, we, we really believe that when we grow our people, we grow our business. And so being connected to our people, understanding their needs is inherent in our, it is inherent in our culture. And we're proud of that. And, you know, the, the advent of social media has even allowed us to stay connected to even more people, more people internally but also using external forms of social media to stay connected to someone who may not feel as comfortable as Amy calling me. You know, an example right. of that is the fairy god boss. What's the I fairy love, god boss? Oh, my gosh. I love the fairy god boss. Oh, tell us, tell us. <laughs> the fairy god, do you know what Glassdoor is? Glassdoor well, why don't you explain like it for our listeners? Okay. Yes. so for those listeners who don't know what Glassdoor is, Glassdoor is a social media site where people can go on and anonymously put out, you know, uh, kind of information about their employer, uh, reviews about their employer to other people, recommend their employer, talk about what it's like to work there. The Fairy God Boss has taken it one step further, and it's for, it's a, it's for women. And so women can go onto Fairy God Boss and talk about what it's like to be a woman in the workforce in a certain company. And companies can... You know, if they choose to put their policies out there and, and make, you know, make things very transparent. And I believe that transparency builds trust, and trust is really the currency in the digital age. So having a place for women to go and for me to go out and see what our women are saying about working at Accenture is mm -hmm. extraordinary. Yes. And, uh, you know, people say to me, Ellen, are you crazy? You know, what if they say <laughs> something bad? And I, I always say, look. I want to know what's on our people's minds. If Fairy God Boss is a place where they feel comfortable expressing that and nowhere else, 
good for me. Then I know. Yes. This also comes back to this is one more example of ways that you are brave and listening in the ways that really matter. I'd also like to point out as a funny coincidence, Glassdoor CMO is going to be on the show that follows ours, Marketing Matters at 5 p.m. if people want to tune in for that. Oh, great. Yes, people should tune in for that. <laughs> Indeed. Um, we love Glassdoor. <laughs> <laughs> but part of it is it sounds like both in the culture that you create where an employee can directly ask or where you're creating digital virtual opportunities for there to be frank dialogue and that you read it without judgment or penalty, but instead curiosity and commitment to learning from it. That's another part of the culture that you're creating and your personal point of view. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we're, we are a big company. We are 375,000 people, but, you know, I, I always tell my team, you know, we need to sweat the small stuff and not the bureaucracy, but really being connected to, to each individual. And, you know, social media allows us to do that. External forms of social media, internal forms of social media. And you cannot replace, I don't believe you, you can't replace, you know, showing up and spending time with people. Our CEO does it every time he shows up in a city to see a client. You'll find him in, in the office doing a town hall. And and that all of us do, whether it's having a dinner or breakfast, you know, just really connecting with our people. And it shows that you care to do that and that you're successful in hearing them. I want to take a step backwards for a minute to this idea of social media, because one of the things I was also really impressed by was the efforts you're making um, to leverage digital technology to help close the gender gap. And I was wondering if you could talk about the forms that that takes and what that looks like, and um, very specifically within Accenture. Yeah, so we we did publish some research about digital fluency and how that can accelerate um, uh, closing the gender gap that you can access on our website. But at Accenture, I think being a digital business really has enabled us to enhance our, our, you know, gender diversity. And why is that? Frankly... We're all on planes less frequently. Yes. <laughs> we have uh, an amazing CIO, Andrew Wilson, who has put in this incredible infrastructure that allows us to, um, you know, have we all have desk-to-desk video. We put in something called Accenture Connected Learning so that our training programs, you know, we can, we can bring world-class faculty, internal and external faculty, into a classroom, a literal classroom, uh, without people having to get on airplanes. So all of those, you know, experiences of using digital technologies to become a digital organization just allows people to be more successful professionally and personally. <laughs> and that's what dig- how digital technologies can really in- increase gender diversity. The person I'm talking to about really... Um, not just talking the talk, but uh, walking the walk, is Ellen Shook, who is the Chief Leadership and Human Resources Officer for Accenture, the global management consulting technology service and outsourcing company. Um, Ellen, this is really striking, This um, the way that you're bringing digital innovation into your human resources practices. Yes. Um, in doing that, are you tapping into, do you have a separate team of people within Accenture who are working on this, or are you tapping into the same innovators who are working with your clients and their products? Well, we have a combination. So I have a um, talent innovation lab that's in HR that has, you know, engineers and um, 
you know, design uh, design experts and, and many different types of skills right in our own talent innovation lab that's resident in HR. But they frequently team with Accenture Labs, Accenture Technology Labs, the Innovation Center, um, which who are the same people that serve our clients and, and collaborate to really drive innovation, you know, into into our work practices. It's amazing because while you're describing things that on one hand you can see where Accenture has the talent pool, the resources, the scope, the vision um, to make this happen, these are also things that can be implemented um, at almost any scale. That video technology, you may be using it to help people communicate across the globe, but it's also a way to help people who are telecommuting collaborate with somebody at the office so that they can stay home with a sick child. Absolutely. Absolutely. How much do you find that these things are deployed um, naturally and willingly, or is it part of your cultural efforts to get people to embrace these things? Well, I, 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 think it, I think it's happening naturally at Accenture because, like I said, it's part of our DNA. You know, mm-hmm. ensuring that our people can be successful professionally and personally is really, you know, we're competing for talent all the time. And in order to do that, you, you have to meet people where they are. And so I think it happens very naturally here, but we're constantly trying to innovate and stay in, at the forefront of doing things. So, you know, video technology and working from home, frankly, has been around at Accenture for years. Mm-hmm. We're really trying to take take it all to the next level in thinking about how we can use, the you know, a more liquid workforce so that people can have, you know, projects on demand so that they mm-hmm. have more flexibility in their work and really using technologies in a, in a whole new and innovative way. As when you say you need to meet people where they are, part of one of the, the aspects of diversity you have is that you have people from around the world working all over the world, not necessarily in their countries of origin. How are you finding the differences? Um, What do you have to be sensitive to as you're implementing policies and procedures and systems to help support workers? Um, Are there ways that you have to adapt based on what cultures you're doing this in? Absolutely. So our core values are consistent across the world. Our core values and our core uh, code of business ethics is really the cornerstone of who we are as an organization but anything related to our people, a program or a practice, has to be extraordinarily local. So, for example, what, what, how that, what that might mean. In India, um, we were seeing our women uh, gravitate toward program management roles. And, you know, that's an important skill, but quite frankly, it's not a skill that's in high demand and short supply. And so women were having difficulty really having flexible work programs because there was always someone that didn't need the flexibility to Mm -hmm. do the work. So our leader there, Mohan, created a certified technical architecture track for women because anyone who knows anything about digital technologies, being a technical architect today is in very short supply and very high demand. So these hundreds of women who are in this track now really write their own ticket on their, you know, on their flexibility, on their, you know, the times they work and where they work and when they work because they have a skill that's very high demand and in short supply 
And he did that because that was a challenge we needed to address in India. It's amazing. Each of these things that you're describing, Ellen, they're a combination of really innovative problem solving, a real commitment to the quality of the career and the and the expandability of the career of the people that you're working with and your desire to develop them and retain them. Um, one of the things that you were talking about before that also comes is at that heart of working with real people and caring about them is you talked about that intersection of strengths and passion. Yep. How do you find those things out? How do you get that information from your employees? Well, two ways. Um, at, at the heart of our whole, you know, performance culture is performance achievement. And so every single person at Accenture takes a strength-based assessment so that they know what their strengths are and that the team that they're working with knows each other's strengths. And then in order to know what they're passionate about, we simply ask them. Every single person in Accenture has a career counselor, someone that is committed to help. Every single person? Every single person in Accenture has a career counselor. There are high schools that can't say that. <laughs> Unfortunately, Either I know that. <laughs> we try to help them too, by the way. Um, so, Ellen, with the little bit of time that we have left, though, sure. um, the other thing that you have become increasingly vocal on is also well being. And yeah. I have to say, I'm delighted that Wharton People Analytics and Thrive and Accenture are all going to be working together to solve some of these big problems and understand these things. Could you talk a little bit about your interest in this and what brought you to the, these kinds of questions? Yeah, well, we, we have our aspiration is to be, you know, a, a uniquely human company in the digital age. And so, you know, the, the combination of what I, you know, performance achievement, so making sure mm -hmm. our people can achieve their aspirations, what we call conduct count, so being very clear on what types of behaviors are acceptable and not acceptable in our company, and then ensuring that people have all the possible enablers to be successful professionally and personally led us to really, you know, forming this partnership with, uh, with Thrive Global, with, with Ariana, who's one of my mentors, but also really ensuring that we can engage Adam Grant because we need the data. We need to make sure that what we're doing is really addressing the, the, you know, the, the workplace issues that we want to get ahead of. And so you know, we want our people to have the, you know, really the, the, the opportunity and the environment to thrive and to achieve their personal and professional aspirations. So you can't ignore, you can't ignore well-being <laughs> no. and, and, say, and say that, right? So it's not just what we say, it's what we do. Well, it's clearly reflected in the way that you took, let's say, Amy's question or, or concern about how to new mothers breastfeed while challenging and pushed past how do you solve that problem and what's that reflecting in a bigger problem and how do you really solve for greater well-being? And also, when you talked about hyper-personalizing, in a way that comes back to getting the analytics and the data on a very large scale. Yes. And so it, it's a testimony to the way that you're committed to continuing to learn and innovate in order to help people be maximally effective, which includes happiness. It, it is true. And, and I must confess, Laura, I am an HR leader but I'm also a geek, and I love data. <laughs> we do, too. We do, too. There's another part of your life I have a couple of questions about, if you don't mind my asking. Um, 
there's no doubt this this is an important job, must be time consuming. Um, but yet you also have some other activities outside of Accenture um, that are also pretty impressive. Your participation at Harvard Harvard's Kennedy School on the leader, Women's Leadership Board of Women in Public Policy. You're on the Board of Trustees for Harvey Mudd College, and you're a member of several women's organizations. How have you chosen where you've put your energy? Well, I I put my energy I, for, in order for me to feel fulfilled as you know as a human being. I have to have time to commit to my family first, to my profession, but also to you know my mission around achieving gender equality in the world. So all of the all of the time I'm spending outside of family and work right now is around that mission. And for example, Harvey Mudd, Maria Clave is one of the most extraordinary leaders. And as the president of that university, she just saw the first graduating class in computer science was 55% women. That is astonishing. I know. So I'm totally committed to her mission. So I joined her board of trustees. One of the things that Melanie Katzman, my former co-host, and I used to talk about a lot is how do you get these kinds of circles of impact? How do you look at what, where is your impact in your immediate world, like with you? And I love how you've talked about your tight unit with your husband and your daughter. And then how does your values and the things that are important to you get enhanced and resonate in your workplace? But then also, how do you reach that out societally? Well, I, I think there's a time and a place for that. I mean, I, I, I do think that, um, you know, there there were times in my career and in my life that I wasn't able to really, you know, make such a big uh, personal commitment to things outside of of work and family. Uh, you know, that, that hasn't always been the case because I just wasn't able to do it. But now that I'm in a position that I can, you know, my daughter's grown. I have an extraordinarily supportive husband. And my job encourages me, my leaders encourage me to, you know, extend our reach and my reach uh, to solve this challenge. Um, it 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 is just something you have to um, be committed to, and you have to be focused. I mean, every, everything I do requires an enormous amount of focus, and how I spend my time outside of work is very focused as well. Well, Ellen, we are enormously grateful for all the work you're doing to help women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace, and I'm terribly grateful for your joining us today on Women at Work. Well, thank you very much, Laura, and uh, happy Women's Equality Day. <laughs> and same to you. Um, to keep up the wonderful work. Um, if you'd like to join our conversation in the next segment, you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866, because when we get back, we'll be talking with Dr. Megan Groom about the New York Academy of Science and their work diversifying the STEM community globally and locally. I'm Laura Zarrow here on Women at Work on Business Radio, and we'll be back shortly. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, continuing our celebration of Women's Equality Day by welcoming back one of our favorite guests. Dr. Megan Groom is the Senior Vice President of Education at the New York Academy of Sciences. Um, She's a leading force in increasing the amount of women with access to STEM education and in STEM professions. She's the founding Senior Vice 
president of education at the New York Academy of Sciences, where they bring together leaders and innovators in the science community to advance scientific research and knowledge, support scientific literacy, and really promote the resolution of society's global challenges through science-based solutions. So here we have another extraordinary woman working with the STEM community to make global change and bring more and more people to that innovative challenge. She's the head of K-12 education, higher ed, and public engagement programs, and one of my favorite guests from former Women at Work shows. If you'd like to join in the conversation or, ask, or have questions for Dr. Groom, you can give us a call at one. 844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So Megan, welcome back to Women at Work. And Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Happy Women's Equality Day. Same to you. And I think a congratulations are in order. You guys just completed your first global STEM Alliance Summit. Yes? We did. We just completed our first global STEM Alliance uh, Summit. And I think we had kids from 100 and I think we had about 130 kids from about uh, 20 different countries that all flew here to New York City uh, to meet each other and to have sort of the world's uh, best time solving STEM problems. (laughs) Okay, so I have to say, it sounds like a remarkable group of kids that they would fly around the world, have the world's best time solving STEM problems, and we are so glad they want to do this. Absolutely, absolutely. I think within our mix, we probably have, I'm going to say, five to seven Nobel laureates and probably a whole bunch of heads of research. (laughs) Uh, And I I hope, given my own background, that we have some of the best STEM teachers in the pipeline already to really inspire uh, kids for the next generation. So I I think this really is a a group of kids to watch. It it wouldn't surprise me. So tell me a little bit more about how you started the global. STEM Alliance Summit um, and what it included. So we have about 500 kids in our different high school level programs. So we have uh, a group of kids in our junior academy, and they are working with scientists to solve some of the world's biggest problems, just like our our regular adult members. They are working uh, in teams with kids from uh, around the world and a scientist to come up with solutions to open innovation challenges. And they have been working on those challenges uh, for most of the school year, and they've only met each other online. Now, we have a second group of kids called our Thousand Girls, Thousand Futures program, and those are girls from around the world who have been working on one-to-one mentorship with STEM professionals uh, and also doing online coursework. And they also have only ever met each other online. So you have kids who are deeply bonded, who are friends and colleagues, not just with each other, but also with their scientists who are now actually getting to meet each other in person. Okay, so wait a second. I want to make sure I've understood all of this mm -hmm. because it, it is really extraordinary. And it's also dovetailing with some things that we were talking about with Ellen Shook about the power of a digitally connected community and its way of advancing um, diversity and closing certain gaps. So if I understand this, you had a junior academy of students who were coming up solutions to problems that you sourced through an innovation tournament. Uh, That's right. So we actually worked with some of our corporate partners. We worked with Arm, which is a UK-based chip design company, and PepsiCo uh, to come up with two real challenges. So we asked them to go to their engineers and to go to their food scientists and say, what are real problems that you're working on? And then we sort of let the kids loose 
on those challenges and we said work together to come up with really interesting and innovative solutions how to did these you problems. how did you create the student teams did they decide what they wanted to work yeah, on or did they, you match them up no they do it themselves so what they do is they look at the challenge and they come up with theirs an ideation phase and they just work digitally to send up what i think of as like a bat signal and they say <laughs> here's my idea who wants to work on it? And then a bunch of kids essentially raise their hand and they say, oh, me, 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 I really like that idea. And the idea shapes and morphs over time as the kids work together on it, but their their affinity is to the solution to the problem. So we had teams from, you know, just really from all over the world. I mean, we had kids from Kenya, working with kids from Bahrain, working with kids from Austin, uh, really just very diverse groups of students, all sort of brought together around a particular idea. And and I don't know how that would have happened when I was 16 years old. I don't think that is even possible no. to happen when but I was No, when you think about old. it, A, to have that kind of access to people yeah. from all over the world, and it was on a regular basis throughout the school year. Oh, it was often 24-7. I mean, you know how some kids are. They wait till the very <laughs> last minute, so there was a lot of activity. I live with a 14-year-old. I know quite well. <laughs> Yeah, so they they actually, you know, they they're very advanced students, and so they took a master's level research course to get ready to work together. Wow! And then we set them loose on on these challenges, and the the platform that we've developed, which is called Launchpad, um, allows them to not only work on challenges that we give them, but also then to put up other issues that they would like to solve. So the students are working on our challenges, but they're also generating challenges themselves. Okay. So there there are a couple of components at play here, and it sounds Mm -hmm. like they were all successful. So if we think back to our traditional work worlds for all of us grown-ups and the way we think about science, there's the scientific knowledge that's necessary to to engage productively in this problem solving. And there's also the ability to work together really almost purely via social media. Mm-hmm. and digital technology. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you screen the students for this or help them with these skills? Yeah, well, I think let me take the second part of that first. I think it's really important for us to recognize that we have to teach people how to work together. We have to teach people how to listen to each other. We have to teach people how to give constructive feedback. It is it is not something you learn in kindergarten and then carry it through. (laughs) It is a real important workforce skill that people have to have. And if you don't have it, you're at a real disadvantage in your workforce. So part of the Research 101 class was how do you work well with others? How do you communicate your ideas? How do you disagree with people? And and we, we taught them that sort of in theory, doing activities in the class. And then because each team had a scientist and sort of a coach that went along with them, those coaches also received some training on how to gently give feedback to the kids about how to, you know, you could have said that a little bit nicer or here's a way to shape what you said. So there's there's the upfront and then there's also the coaching that goes along with it. And we see whether you're a second grader in one of our programs or, or quite frankly, um, a professional scientist, we see that everybody can benefit from sharpening those particular skills. And they, and they really do play out in the peer-reviewed science world that most of these kids are going to be living in. Now, one of the other factors that had to be at play here was the diversity factor. You've got Mm -hmm. kids from all over the world 
and boys and girls. What was yeah. the ratio, male to female? Okay, well, happy Women's <laughs> Equality Day. It was 80% women. Really? Yes. Okay, big shout out to you guys. That's amazing. Yeah, we, we, that was an artifact of the application process, and that was just the application numbers that came in. So we did, we did look to balance geographically. We looked to balance around the different STEM fields. So are you interested in engineering? Are you interested in science? Are you interested in math? You know, we didn't want everybody who was interested in biomedical engineering we wanted a, a diversity right. of um, of interest, but then we also, you know, we we also wanted to sort of reflect the pool, the applicant pool that came in, just around um, around the number that that percentage of students. So the the vast, you know, the majority of the students in the program are are young women, um, and I think that. Um, that you know that is only one way to describe the diversity of of this group you know there were there's great age diversity there's great socioeconomic diversity and then the the cultural backgrounds by which people came from um was uh was you know a real factor at play here a lot of different ways of talking about things problem solving educational backgrounds um but but once you get up and over those introductory hurdles um and you learn to listen and respect ideas from wherever they come from, I think the kids don't have to be told that diversity of ideas lead to better products. I think that they just understand that good ideas come from everybody in the group. But it um, sounds like by focusing the coaching and the intervention mm -hmm. from the adults who are watching on how to have productive dialogue, yep. um, give and receive criticism effectively and fairly, um, it actually addressed some of the issues that would normally come up around gender or socioeconomic origins um, or country of origin. Absolutely. And that's very much a design choice in terms of we are going to tell everybody explicitly that these things are important. This is what we're going to be looking for. And these are essentially in this sort of you know, international cross-cultural space, these are the things that are important to us. And, and so that we set that culture of the virtual space right up front with all of the different uh, work that the kids did. So, you know, in the absence of, of um, any sort of structure, you know, again, this is a virtual space that the kids filled, we said very clearly, here's what matters. You know, and, it's what's interesting is it's um, bringing back art. I went to art school mm -hmm. where um, learning to give and receive productive criticism on your work was part of every single day at school. You had to put your work on the wall. You had to talk about it. You had to talk about other people's work. Everything was assessed in front of other people in a way that you had to assign language to the the ways that you were trying to be creative and innovative and produce effective work. And one of the things that I saw was that while there were clearly gender patterns in three-dimensional mm -hmm. fields versus two-dimensional fields, um, in the crit process, the gender issues weren't nearly as prevalent. Right. I think when you create a structure, even if it's a highly, you know, highly um, templated structure. So, for example, for younger children, we use what's called a PNP. So it's a positive, a negative and a mm -hmm. positive. Um, <laughs> we, you know, in the very simple structure of doing that, we tell people this is how you give uh, feedback. And this is the only way that you give feedback. And once they get that basics, then you can go from there. But I think um, when you, you are sort of having everybody do it this 
same way. Again, there's no room for, um, you know, you look funny, you smell funny. What's that thing on your head? <laughs> right. um, you know, there's no there's uh, there's less opportunity for that sort of subjective feedback because the idea, you know, you're you're trying to really critique the idea. But I think all STEM professionals. Um, just based on my experience doing peer review, mm-hmm. I think all of us adults could probably go through the same <laughs> class that uh, either you did during the crit process or that these kids went through. It's really hard to to give feedback, and it's something we do in teacher school um, all the time. Yeah, so I it, think it's hard to give, and it's painful to receive, yet oh, yeah. it's transformative. It is. It is. And I do think for the adults in this situation, having them put themselves in the mindset of a coach Uh, like you would do like a little league coach or, you know, a taekwondo coach or a gymnastics Mm -hmm. coach uh, where you're trying to get everybody to be better and seeing, uh, seeing that feedback and criticism is a, is a positive thing, uh, then I think that really helps their mindset. So you're not attacking someone's idea, you're, you're making them better. And I always say, and this is the teacher in me, I always say, you know, my red pen equals love. If I didn't care about <laughs> right. you and your progress as much, I wouldn't write anything on your right. paper. And it's also the other cultural value that is the precondition for this mm-hmm. is that we're all here to turn out the best possible work. Right. And if you don't want to be here doing playing by these rules, you don't have to be here. Right. But that this is part of how you go from um, this is how you make something out of nothing, whether it's in science or in art and continue to develop. So one of the other thing that's fascinating here is this is a social media platform. So did it we know that when men and women, even boys and girls, are in classrooms together. There's dynamics that go along with gender, of Mm -hmm. talking over, of shrinking, of small physical presence versus large. Um, Did any of that play out in social media, or did different patterns emerge? You know, I, you know, these are pretty moderated um, platforms that we have going on here. And I would say it doesn't play out um, as much by gender as it does by super user and less users. Mm. So you have, you definitely have dominant users on the platform. Um, and their dominance is more by volume. Uh, and I mean, just like, you know, 10 posts versus one post. <laughs> um, but I, I think with the asynchronous communication nature of this, um, and I actually, this is part of what my dissertation research was about, um, the asynchronous nature of doing this uh, reduces the uh, risk level of, of um, having to talk out loud and having to out-compete um, and, and interrupt somebody. So when you're, you know, your comment posts, when your comment posts, mm-hmm. you have a lot less control um, over that. And then you do, you know, when you have a heavy moderation like you need here, um, we didn't see those particular issues, um, but we did see that sort of, um, and we had, it's funny, we had we had bo- both boys and girls who were in this super user uh, category. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the asynchronous nature plus the moderation means that this is a fairly safe space. Yeah, it sounds like it creates the right conditions for it. And by the way, the extraordinary educator that I'm talking with is Dr. Megan Groom, who's the Senior Vice President of Education at the New York Academy of Sciences, where they just concluded their first Global STEM Alliance Summit. So that actually wants to uh, makes me want to go back to what happened now that you've got this whole community working mm-hmm. really around the globe online with these successful kind of online structures. Sounds like the asynchronous aspect worked, the moderated discussion worked. Um, What happened when they all came together in person? 
I imagine it felt a lot like what the closing ceremonies of the Olympics feels like. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden you have all of these people who have been competitors with one another, you know, milling about, and all of a sudden they sort of get together as this huge, joyous celebration. I mean, these are these are kids who have been working together all year. They they know each other. They do talk with each other, you know, using the video chat platforms and stuff like that. But they're in person, um, and I imagine uh, it's a it's a little like those closing closing ceremonies of the Olympics. But being a kid in STEM is it can be very very hard. So a lot of the students talk about they're the only kid in their class who is you know identifies as a STEM nerd. They're the only kid who's really interested in astrophysics. So there's a social isolation component that affects uh, boys and girls, but it affects girls more, that when they get around other students who are maybe different than them, but are in the same social circumstances, there is a a bonding and an affinity Mm -hmm. that goes on just because all of a sudden now, you know, instead of being, we have one girl um, who got into Scottish space camp. And and I imagine that's pretty tough (laughs) to be the only kid at your school who's who's going to Scottish space camp. Um, But she is a rock star. It's, around you know she is I'd imagine really yeah, you so. know it's funny this is another time where I'm seeing this parallel with the arts community yeah where you had kids who had exceptional talent and deep deep passion right. and they may not have been environments where it was cultivated where it was understood um, or where they were able to take that passion and that focus and really run with it and and so they they find community but it's also must be joyous for them I think it's I think it's incredibly joyous, and I think also you know when you talk about your join staying, succeeding, and leading, I think those these kids go through that cycle very quickly where they join things and they they decide um, whether they're going to stay or not based upon a, a mini success that they have. So I think for kids it may be a little bit flipped where they need to join. It's risky to join, and then they have a little taste of success, and that little taste of success helps them to. Day within the community. And then some kids devote more time and, and have that leadership opportunity. And I think for kids, the leadership opportunity comes very much with a price of now that you have been a leader or a super user in this community, now it's your job to bring other people people with you. So I, I think when you, we talk about this cycle, I think kids see that responsibility um, really as part of their success in a community so that when someone knocks on the door and says, hey, can I join? They know how challenging that is. And they open the door and say, yes, come on in, be so, a part of our group. So it's like what Ellen Shook was saying in our first half hour about lifting as you rise yes. and that they bring each other with them. So yep. this community and this way of cultivating this community not only stimulates them as scientists mm-hmm. and helps really get them working on real world problems, but it sounds like it's building a dynamic network for them where they will support one another as a result of making these connections. Right. And I think also the connection into the adults in the equation is also really important. So they have sort of a multi-dimensional, multi-generational network now. So they have their own uh, scientists that's theirs. You know, it's like they're, they're um uh, they, they identify very strongly with this relationship with that adult. But then that adult also has um, his or her own network 
that they can tap into. So we talk about mentoring, which is a lot like coaching, Mm -hmm. but we also talk about sponsorship, which is bringing someone along with you, which it sounds like what Ellen was talking about. So what you get is a scientist who says, ooh, I like this person's work. Um, I've been working to shape and coach what they're doing. I'm going to say, hey, um, would you like to also be a co-author on this paper? Would you like to present with me? I would love to hear your feedback on this. So we saw that um, between the students and their adults and their mentors. And then we also saw that amongst the mentoring community, too, because what we saw was, you know, now these hundreds of scientists who are mentoring, they're having a common experience, and all of a sudden, they're in a community of their own as well with, you know, other smart, dynamic people who are, you know, a million different fields doing all sorts of different things. So I think this digital cohort building that we're able to do and those bonds that we're forming are at so many different levels that it really just reinforces the idea that no matter how old you are or how established you are in your community, you always need friends around you that are both professional and personal. Megan, on that note, I have to say we are so grateful to have you as our friend here at Women at Work. The work you're doing is just extraordinary, and I love hearing what you're doing at the New York Academy of Sciences. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, A special thank you today to Matt Johnson, who's sitting in for Patty Hall, who just got married. So big congratulations to Patty and our sound engineer, Dan Baker. Um, And also special thanks to our production assistant, Allie Freed. Um, Our schedule of replays can be found on the SiriusXM website. That's www.sirius.com. SiriusXM.com backslash business radio. And tune in next week for our conversation on how we increase women's access to education through the use of digital technology and what online education can do for you. Thanks so much for joining us here on Women's Equality Day on Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on SiriusXM 111. I'm Laura Zarrow. Thank you so much.